0: Hebrews chapter 11, would you join me in prayer one more time? Heavenly Father, our gracious God, you spoke all of creation into existence by your word, you give life to dead hearts by your word. You sustain us in faith by your word. And so I pray, Lord God, as we come to your word this morning, that we would hear the voice of our chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would behold him with the eyes of faith, that we would be strengthened, prepare our hearts to meet with you through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm about to share with you uh, one of the secrets of many preachers. This is one of the greatest challenges that many preachers around the world face. And you're not going to be surprised when I share with you that this is uh, probably one of the greatest challenges I face in preaching. And that is time management in the sermon. And trying to keep the sermon within appropriate time limits. A lot of preachers face this. I mean, we try various ways. You know, uh, um, maybe a year ago, I was at a conference where one of my favorite preachers was preaching, and he finished praying, and he then said, I am now going to perform my most meaningless action. And he took out his watch, and he placed it over there on the pulpit. You know, I also try something like that. I put the stopwatch on, and I have that running every week. Maybe you didn't notice, uh, but it still gets pretty challenging sometimes. And one of the encouraging things for me in preaching is that I'm not the only one who faces this challenge. Uh, Not only do preachers today face these challenges, but it goes all the way back to the author of Hebrews, and he faced this challenge. If you remember the context of Hebrews, this was not just a letter, although it's called a letter to the Hebrews. This was originally a sermon, and it was a sermon preached by a loving, concerned pastor to a congregation that was struggling under affliction and persecution. They had grown lax and weary. Uh, They were tempted to abandon the faith. And so he is preaching this sermon to them to encourage their faith. And we are now coming today to the end of this great chapter in Hebrews 11. And the preacher has begun running out of time. He's been taking us in chapter 11 through the entire Old Testament He's been showing us how faith shaped the lives of God's people in the past. And we've seen specifically that faith here is defined as trust in the reality of God's promises that then shapes your life in the present. And he's given us many examples of that from the Old Testament, from Abraham's life, and then we saw from Moses' life and several others. But now he finds himself running out of time. And so he begins shortening his points. And sometimes people will talk to me about the sermon after the service, and they'll say, Pastor, your first point was very long, and the second point was shorter, and the third point was really short. Yeah, it happens. And it happened here in Hebrews 11. He takes us very briskly now through the rest of the whole Old Testament, quick run-through, showing us how God's people conquer, and how God's people suffer and endure by trusting in the certain reality of God's promises. And what the author of Hebrews wants to do through all of these examples is he wants us to aspire to the same confident trust in God's promises so that we endure faithfully to the end. Might remember as we opened chapter 11, the beginning, he reminded us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And closely connected to that idea, we might say, without faith, it is impossible to live the Christian life. That's the main theme today. And as we look at the text, it really breaks down neatly into three sections from which we'll see three truths concerning the life of faith. Uh, Verses 32 to the first half of verse 35 is one section. And the key idea there is conquer. By faith we conquer. The second half of verse 35 to verse 38 is the next section. And the main idea there is how we suffer by faith and endure suffering. And then the last two verses are a section on its own. And the main idea there is how we will be perfected by faith. So let me read this text. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mount of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth and all these though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised since god had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect first truth This morning, concerning the life of faith. By faith, God's weak people conquer. By faith, God's weak people conquer. I told you the pastor has realized that he is running out of time in this sermon, and so he starts quickly summarizing and he gives us a whole litany of faith heroes from the Old Testament. What more shall I say? For time would fail me, he says. And then he quickly names them. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And if you go back and read the stories of these people in the Old Testament, you'll see that God did some marvelous, amazing, powerful things in and through weakness and through faith. You might go back to the book of Judges and read the story there of Gideon. And you'll see that Israel was being oppressed by this other kingdom. The Midianites were oppressing the people of Israel. They were living in constant fear. Uh, Gideon was really a fearful guy, kind of a scaredy cat, hiding. And then God raised him up to lead the people of Israel against the Midianites. And God does these things in the strangest of ways. Because Gideon amasses an army of 32,000 warriors to fight the Midianites. But then God begins to reduce that army. He gives them certain tests, and they're really strange tests. If you go back and read the book of Judges, it doesn't seem to make any sense. But the army goes down from 32,000 to 10,000, and then it gets further whittled down from 10,000 to 300. And God says, here, this is the army that's going to fight the mighty Midianites, 300 israelite soldiers and if you look at the army of midian they were so vast that no one could count the text says they had camels as many as the sand on the seashore but what happens gideon's army wins the lord fights for them they trust in god and his promises and by faith they conquer they overcome the midianites you see this again in the life of Barak, who's named there Barak was a man who led Israel in concert with Deborah who was a prophet, prophetess and she was a judge of Israel at the time and God's word came to Barak through her and he led out again a weak army 10,000 against the mighty army of the Canaanites with a fearsome leader named Sisera who had 900 iron chariots and once again the people of Israel prevailed, even through this weak army. The next guy named there is Samson, and many of us uh, know the story of Samson, and we think of Samson sometimes as a failure, but Samson had this faith that was beneath the surface, and throughout his life, he was strengthened by God and defeated whole armies by himself until finally, at the end of his life, he was blinded and weak In the temple of a false god, brought out to be mocked and uh, for the entertainment of the people there, and he called upon the Lord. And then in his death, he brought down that temple and killed more enemies of God and of the people of Israel in his death than in his entire life. Then we see their name, Jephthah. Jephthah was an outcast from society, he was a mercenary. And then he was brought back and raised up by God. And he led God's people to victory against the Ammonites. And then, of course, our author names David and Samuel. David, the great king, appointed by God himself, a man after God's own heart, who received God's covenant promise that from his line would always be a king over the throne of God's people and through whom God's kingdom would be expanded to the ends of the earth and you see this journey of faith in David's life as he is hunted and he faces a great persecution and he trusts in God. His kingdom is established and he rules faithfully over Israel. Or Samuel, the great prophet, kind of the preeminent prophet after Moses, before the rest of the prophets come. Samuel courageously spoke the word of God in very trying circumstances. And then the author decides, okay, I'm going to skip over the rest really fast and summarize it all in one word. Time is running out. The prophets. And with one word we have Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all of these guys. Jonah, all of whom God worked through them by faith where they courageously and boldly delivered God's word to God's people in the most difficult of circumstances. And then the author, he's named a bunch of people. Now he tells us what they did in verses 33 to 35. And if you look at verses 33 to 35 there, he tells us what they did in terms of how their faith worked in terms of three achievements, three escapes, deliverances, three more achievements, and then verse 35, there's a kind of a capstone work of God worked by faith there at the end. So three achievements, verse 33. He says, through faith, they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. They saw the work of God in and through their lives. They saw enemy armies overthrown, entire kingdoms brought under subjugation to the rule of God. They established righteousness among God's people. They saw again and again God fulfill several promises. There were three deliverances that the the author, there were many deliverances, he highlights three. First he says they stopped the mouth of lions. And of course you think of the story of the prophet Daniel thrown by a pagan king into the lion's den. Spends the night there with lions. Imagine sitting in that place surrounded by lions and the lions are shutting their mouth. Daniel has trusted in God. He says they quenched the power of fire and again we think of Daniel's companions Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who were thrown into a fiery furnace that was heated up and the flame did not harm them. He says they escaped the edge of the sword. Here we can think of men like Elijah or Elisha whose lives were under constant threat. They were chased, they were hunted. But they were delivered. Three more achievements. They were made strong out of weakness. We saw there Samson was weakened and in his weakness called upon the Lord and the Lord made him strong once again. They became mighty in war. Men like Gideon who were scared, afraid. God raised them up and gave them victory. They put foreign armies to flight. And of course kind of this capstone work of faith in verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And you think... Of uh, the woman with uh, Elisha who lost her son. And Elisha prayed. And the boy was brought back to life. Given back to his mother. Amazing. And if you keep reading the Old Testament, dear brothers and sisters, as you read God's word, you'll see again and again and again amazing, surprising, marvelous, overcoming, God-glorifying victories As God's people conquer by faith. But you know, the surprising element here is that as you read the Old Testament, you don't just see a book of heroes. Actually, you come to realize that the story of God and all of these guys, they're actually kind of a book of zeros. If you think carefully about Hebrews chapter 11, and you think this is God's hall of fame, it's really kind of a hall of shame. All the way back to Abraham, they had fluctuating faith, often. Frequent failures. They were weak and flawed. Their morality was questionable. I mean, look at the the catalog here. I mean, Gideon repeatedly tested God His faith was not confident. He led the people into victory and then afterwards led them into idolatry. Or Barak here was not taking upon himself the call to lead God's people. He had to be called to do so by this woman Deborah. and Even then he's hesitant. Jephthah, I mean, it's a tragic story. This guy made a foolish and a rash vow that ended up with him having to sacrifice his daughter, taking his daughter's life, going directly against God's law and God's word. Samson. Samson was not a mighty strong man. He was a a foolish, weak man, spiritually and morally, lusted after women. And then because of that, even compromised his faith. David, the great king, the great adulterer and murderer who brought great pain upon his own household and the entire kingdom. Samuel, the great prophet who spoke God's word to God's people but didn't raise his sons according to God's word and then his sons end up just as bad as the previous generation. Elijah, who constantly struggled with depression even kind of comes to an all-time low when he runs away and goes into a cave and says, what is God doing? Yet by their faith, God worked through them. Their trust in his promises, in the reality of his existence and power, meant that God worked through them for his purposes by faith. You know, the the author of Hebrews has taken us through chapter 11 and he shows us patriarchs, prophets, politicians, and even a prostitute. All of them with fluctuating faith, messy morality, frequent failures, often weak, but yet trusting in the reality of the God who fulfills his Promises and God says concerning this weak ragtag hall of shame in verse 16 that He is not ashamed to be called their God because despite their sin, they trusted in Him, in His promises. And the author of Hebrews, this pastor is preaching to a congregation of Hebrew Christians who are struggling. Some of them have messed up. Some of them are weak. And he says to them, if those guys in the Old Testament, if they could act in faith, and if they could see God's power, then so can you. And if that was true for the congregation of Hebrew Christians who was receiving this word, then brothers and sisters, it's also true for us. God is not ashamed to be called our God. Your God. Because even in spite of our weakness even in spite of our sin, even in spite of our failures, even in spite of our fluctuating faith, when we trust in the reality of who God is and we bank our lives on His promises, He works through His weak people for His glory. And through Him, we conquer. Think about this. I mean, some in the congregation receiving this word, uh, chapter 12, he says they were struggling. They had drooping arms, And they had trembling knees. Some of them were even tempted to abandon the faith. And the pastor reminds them, by faith, brothers and sisters, even when we are weak, we conquer. Brethren, do we see this, beloved, in our own church, in our own lives? I mean, think back to three years ago when this hall was almost empty, when there was pretty much (laughs) no way to gather When we were all kind of facing some of the great some of us the greatest trial of our lives, and God's word said to us that Jesus will preserve his church, whether it's persecution or pandemics, no matter what might come our way, Jesus is Lord, for he says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and he has. So we ask ourselves: can the gospel go forth? To the nations, for God's glory, through a weak, sinful, ragtag group of expats who live in the Arabian Peninsula and have formed a community and call themselves ECC. Can God do that? By faith? Yes! Can we see healthy churches planted in the nations for the glory of God, even among unreached peoples making disciples? By faith? Yes and amen. When we unite as a church and call out to God in corporate prayer calling upon Him to fulfill His promises will He not save people from every tribe and tongue and nation including the hosts of this nation the nation in which we live will God be able to do that by faith? Yes and amen. Brothers and sisters no matter what we face God's people conquer by faith in your own personal lives no matter how weak You might feel, no matter how flawed you recognize yourself to be, how much you are struggling, by faith, will you not see the hand of God Almighty at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure by His Spirit, producing in you the holiness that you desire and establishing you in every good work, in love and good deeds for his name's sake, making you a witness for the risen Christ. Shall he not do this? Again, by faith, the answer is yes and amen. Because by faith, God's weak people are more than conquerors through him who loved us. However, we would misunderstand what the author is telling us here if we read only half of it and lapse into some kind of a victorious prosperity mindset with no place for suffering in the Christian life. You see, sometimes people can tend to take passages like this and then say, Yeah, by faith, if you have enough faith, you conquer. And that will always be the case. But no, the author shows us here that even as God's people conquer by faith, God's people also suffer because of their faith. And we endure that suffering by faith. That's our second truth concerning the life of faith that we must aspire towards. We saw first that by faith, God's weak people conquer. And second, we see, by faith, God's suffering people endure. God's suffering people endure. This is in the second half of verse 35 You know, there's actually a very sudden shift in the text there, if you noticed. He's been going through from verses 33 to 35, giving us this great catalog of conquering deeds accomplished by faith. He says in verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. And then suddenly you notice this abrupt change in your English Bible. Some were tortured. In the Greek, the change there is even more striking. It's almost as if the author Puts a, a big word there in bold, all-caps, underline red font, screaming at you from the text. "but but," or however, some were tortured. You know, there is this false doctrine that has infected Christianity and churches around the world called the health wealth and prosperity gospel represented by men like Joel Osteen who say that if you believe in Christ and if you have enough faith, you have your best life now. To which the author of Hebrews says, no way. It's a hard life now. And we look forward to our best life later. We conquer through suffering did you see it There, some were tortured refusing to accept release and the word torture there that the author uses is a very specific word that actually links to a story in Jewish history from about 200 180 to 200 years before the time of Christ so before our Lord Jesus came About 180 years before that, the people of Israel were living under the rule of the Greeks, right? The Hellenistic kingdom. And a wave of persecution broke out, especially against the Jewish people at this time. And we are given the story, I mean, if the the story is recorded of how they faced that persecution. And there are a couple of chapters that are especially hard to read. One is the story of an old man, an elderly priest named Eliezer, who was 90 years old. And the Greeks who were persecuting the people told him if he compromises his faith in the one true God, if he would just compromise, repudiate his faith, they would give him an easy release. I mean, they didn't want to inflict pain on an old man. But he refused to accept release, as you see in the text there. And the word for torture here in this text that the author of Hebrews uses actually speaks of that man's torture because this word for torture refers to a big metal drum on which people were stretched out. It was a circular like a wheel. People were stretched out by their limbs from top to bottom so that the entire body was stretched. And then the drum was rotated as blows were inflicted And scourging was inflicted upon the person. And because they are so stretched out, their bones would crack. And their skin would tear. Can you imagine a 90-year-old man going through that torture and saying, I refuse to accept release. Why? So that he might rise again to a better life. The original text would say, so that he might attain a better resurrection. Better than the resurrection we see in the first half of verse 35, that a woman received her boy back, who was raised from the dead, temporarily, physically. Now, this is speaking of the resurrection life that is promised to all God's people. Of course, the reference there was also in the same wave of persecution to seven brothers and their mother who went through extreme persecution and torture for their faith in the one true God and again there was constant pressure to compromise just relax just do what we say and we will let you go and each of these seven brothers was tortured one after another before their mother tortured and killed and the torturing was gruesome bear with me as I share with you their hair was pulled out from their heads their skin was scalped off of their heads their tongues were cut off Their hands and legs were cut off. And then they were finally fried in giant frying pans for their faith in the one true God. The first brother said this to his torturers. You may kill us, but the king of the universe will raise us from the dead and give us eternal life. Another one of the brothers, before they cut off his limbs, said this, God gave these to me, but his laws mean more to me than my hands, and I know God will give them back to me again. Yet another brother, before his torture and death, says this, I am glad to die at your hands, because we have the assurance that God will raise us from death. And each one of these brothers, six of them, one after another being put to death in these gruesome ways. The seventh one was a young boy, barely a teenager. And imagine their mother watching this, each of her sons. And with the last boy, they they don't want to hurt the little boy, the younger boy. They say, well, we'll release him. And they talk to his mother and say, please have pity on your son, convince him to compromise the faith, and we'll, we'll let him go, we'll let you both go. So his mother says, okay, I'll talk to him. And so she speaks to her last son after watching each of her six sons executed. She speaks to her seventh son, a young boy, teenager. My son, have pity on me. Remember that I carried you in my womb for nine months and nursed you for three years. I have taken care of you and looked after all your needs up to the present day. And so the the opponents are thinking, okay, here it comes, right? And she's going to help him do this and get get a release and they'll compromise at last. Then she says, so because of this, I urge you, my child, to look at the sky and the earth, consider everything you see there and realize that God made it all from nothing just as he made the human race. So don't be afraid of these butchers. Give up your life willingly and prove yourself worthy of your brothers so that by God's mercy, I may receive you back with them at the resurrection. And the boy underwent the same fate as his brothers. And then finally the mother was put to death. How do people endure that kind of suffering and death? They endure... Because of their belief in the God who raises the dead and the promise of a resurrection unto eternal life. That's what always drives God's people. And and the story continues. The author continues to say the kinds of suffering that people faced. Others suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. Verse 37, they were stoned. That was a common form of death. For many of God's people, we think in the New Testament of Stephen, Acts chapter 7, or the prophet Zechariah, the end of the book of Chronicles, put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. History tells us, one history tells us that this is possibly the prophet Isaiah was put to death by being sawn in half by the wicked king Manasseh. They were killed with the sword. Not only did many of God's faithful suffer and die for their faith, but even their lives on earth were hard, filled with trials of many kinds. Did you see that? They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. You know, some weeks ago I told you that one image for the life of God's people that we can connect with as we live our lives here is that of being expats. God's people live as expats in this world. But there is another image in our context that is even closer to the mark that we might all be familiar with if you know the history of this nation. God's people are not just expats. God's people are Bedouins. More than 50 years ago, all of this was desert, and there were Bedouin tribes that lived in this region. That wandered through the desert. And that was not a fun experience. It was not like, you know, when you go out desert camping for a couple of nights and enjoy it out there. No, it was hard. One history scholar says the Bedouin's life was hard and merciless, always hungry and usually thirsty. that's the life of God's people in this world. It's a hard and merciless life. In one way, that's our identity. For our faith in Christ, we are Bedouins in this world. That's your life and mine. But did you see what God says concerning these people? Did you see what the author of Hebrews says there? He says they were those of whom the world was not worthy. By their faith, they were too good for this world. The world shows that it is not worthy of such people because of its mistreatment and rejection of those who trust the Lord. And in their suffering, in their hardship, they demonstrate that this world is not worthy of them. They give evidence that they believe in and that they belong to a better world a new creation that is coming that God has prepared for those who love Him and that one day God will make all things right and that's where they'll be because of their hope in God's promises. Again, the author is reminding us it's by faith that you endure suffering. By God's grace, He gives us faith which makes His future promises visible in the present, real right now and therefore empowers us to endure Harm, hatred, suffering, rejection for His name. Think about the congregation to which this word came. They were struggling. They were tempted to abandon their faith, facing affliction. And the author tells them, Endure, like our forefathers in the faith did. I don't know what suffering or persecution you're going through. I do know, brothers and sisters, that for some of you in this congregation, it is really hard that you are facing affliction, fire, hardship for your faith in Christ. But I would say, honestly, for most of us, our trial is not so much suffering and affliction. What tempts us to grow, lax, and abandon our faith is comfort and convenience and we forget our identity as a bedouin people as a pilgrim people as a suffering people who follow a suffering savior you know all throughout history both in the Old Testament and in church history we don't know when the persecution or suffering is going to come it happens all of a sudden things change overnight We don't know what suffering or persecution God might permit to come our way. But it is to be expected. If you look through the pages of church history, you will see that Christians throughout the ages for 2,000 years, as one author put it, have been attacked through lying, reviling, slander, blasphemy, whipping, scourging, burning, hanging, crucifying, casting to wild beasts, and every conceivable form of cruelty. And here the author is showing us that's not just in the New Testament. It was the same in the Old Testament. It's the same all the time for all of us who name the name of the one true God. We, brothers and sisters, are a minority people, are a pilgrim people, are a wandering people, a Bedouin people, a suffering people, a despised people, a forsaken people, a dying people, just like they were. And so just like them, We are called to endure, to hang on till the end by trusting in the reality of God's promises. But there's one way, you see, in which our experience is very different from theirs. That's what the author makes clear in verses 39 and 40. And that leads to our third truth that inspires us in the life of faith. We saw first, by faith, God's weak people conquer. Second, that by faith, God's suffering people endure. And then finally we see, by faith, God's dying people will be perfected. God's dying people will be perfected. Verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better For us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Did you see that there? They were commended for their faith. God Himself bears witness that He was pleased with them. There, the author is taking us back to the beginning of the chapter, you know, and when He started chapter 11, He said that it was by faith that the people of old received their commendation from God. God himself, almighty God, testifies that he is pleased with these people. And as we read of this, we think what amazing faith, what amazing trust in the promises of God, and what an amazing thing to be counted righteous in the sight of the God of heaven and earth. And yet they did not receive what was promised. Did you see that? They received the fulfillment of many promises. The text told us in verse 33, they, are, they obtained promises by faith. But they didn't see the fulfillment of the ultimate promise. The promise of a complete cleansing from sin. The promise of a salvation that provided immediate access into God's presence. Why? Because Jesus Christ Christ, was yet to come and he was yet to die and rise and yet to provide cleansing by his blood and perfection and access into the presence of God and brothers and sisters in the gracious plan of God in the gracious kindness of God towards you dear saint in Christ we have received this better situation we are on this side of Jesus' coming. Do you see? By faith, they looked forward to a reality that they could not clearly see, that had not yet come. Those animal sacrifices that they provided, they offered sacrifices for sin. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Those sacrifices, I've told you often, were like a credit card, just temporarily postponing the debt. But we look backward to the cross, to a reality that has taken place. Even as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we remember that Christ, our Savior, the Son of God was crucified for us, that he shed his blood and has cleansed us from our sin. He has provided access into God's presence. We look backward at the reality that is. We experience a reality that is now present in our lives where we stand before God freely and boldly, approach Him with confidence, and together with all of the saints, past and present, Old Testament and new, we look forward to the certain reality of resurrection life that has been guaranteed and demonstrated through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. The cross stands in the middle of history, paying for the sins of all the faithful saints of the past, and paying for your sins and my sins right now with access to God's presence and a promise of resurrection life in his heavenly city in the future Jesus suffered and died that we would be completely cleansed and receive the fulfillment of all God's promises today is often called Palm Sunday Uh, we remember, and people mark this day, the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, uh, to remember the triumphant entry of our Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. Riding on the back of a donkey, people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were putting down palm branches before him, recognizing him as king. Indeed, Jesus came as the conquering king Not only did he come as a conquering king but he came as a suffering king because the one before whom they laid palm branches soon would have a crown of thorns placed upon his head. He lived the life of wandering and being forsaken and despised on this earth. God the Son took on flesh, lived the Bedouin life in the harsh reality of a fallen world. Was tortured. Was crucified. Took upon himself the wrath of God and the judgment that we deserve. Offered himself, poured out his blood. Offered himself as the perfect sacrifice that would cleanse us from sin. Rose again. Conquering even through his suffering. Defeating death. And sin. And he has provided something better for all who will receive him. That can be yours today. If you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ. In the reality of who he is and what he's done. You have cleansing of your sin. And the promise of eternal life. The author tells us. God provided for us something better. And I told you the theme of the entirety of Hebrews can be summarized in three words. Jesus is better. And through Him, we receive perfection. He is the perfect high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us, who is praying for us even now. He offered Himself as the perfect sacrifice that once for all cleanses us from sin. He has inaugurated a new and better covenant through which we draw near to God, has written the law on our hearts ensuring our transformation and holiness and He has guaranteed for us by His resurrection the certainty of our resurrection for those who trust Him. And we need that resurrection because you see the ultimate enemy that we all face is the reality of death. Some of you uh, maybe have read the news or heard the news this past week. It's heavy on my heart of how in Nashville, Tennessee, in the United States, a transgender activist walked into a Christian school and began shooting people. And three children... And three adults were killed. One of the kids was a pastor's daughter. It weighs heavy on my heart. The past couple of weeks, I know three friends of mine over the years who have been battling cancer. We prayed for our brother Biju John. He was a student of mine when I was teaching at Gulf Theological Seminary the last several years. He went to be with the Lord. I know another friend in his 40s lost his life in India after a sudden onset of very aggressive cancer. I've told you a few weeks ago of our missionary friends and a dear sister who is preparing to meet the Lord soon. Death is real and it stings. But in Christ, we have the certain guarantee of perfection, of resurrection, forever in a heavenly city. One theologian speaking of this chapter, Hebrews 11, reminds us that this resurrection is what they all look forward to. And he says this, A tiny spark of light led them to heaven. But now that the sun of righteousness shines on us, what excuse shall we have if we still cling to this earth? Brothers and sisters, what are we clinging to? You know, as these Hebrew Christians were tempted to abandon the faith, they were constantly facing affliction, persecution, the possibility of death for their faith. They were faced with one question is it worth it to be a Christian? And the author of Hebrews, now together with the entire chorus of God's faithful people from the Old Testament, all of them answer with one word. Christ. We have Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for so marvelous a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we are more than conquerors. Through the one who loved us and gave his life for us. May we be those who suffer well and endure suffering and endure to the end with the perfection that is in Christ that we experience even now and that we will one day experience forever in your heavenly kingdom. Remind us of these truths as we come to your table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.